has been said, we'll be in James chapter 5, continuing our journey through the book of James. And this morning, we'll just be covering verses 1 through 6. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. So I'll read the text and pray, and then we'll begin, starting in verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you would come and use this small section of your word to open up a small doorway for us to cross through and behold the infinite God. Lord, I know, and I'm just praying for the difficulty of applying texts like this that seem uh, perhaps to many to be abstract, to be uh, things that don't apply directly to our lives. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see glory, that you would help us to see where our sin is being called out, where we're being called to your presence, and that we would come running. Lord, meet us in this time sanctify your word to us help us to grow in our joy and our rest and peace in you for your own glory i pray in christ's name amen have you ever looked at something and at first glance thought uh, that whatever this thing is is completely irrelevant to my life i I can't relate to this thing at all Um, something that's irrelevant to my life and then only after further looking at it or further reviewing, uh, say it's an article or something, or a story or a song, and maybe you couldn't relate to at first, uh, only after further reviewing it, you see that you actually do relate very closely to this thing, and that it's not irrelevant, but very relevant to your life. Um, this happened recently. One of my wife sent me an article. She'll occasionally send me an article or something that she comes across online um, that's either interesting or just uh, caused you to think or it's funny. And she sent me this article entitled, 31 Things Only Husbands Would Say. So my antenna is up. My, my, defense, my defenses are up. I'm wondering why, what she's sending me this for. Um, and at first glance, I click on the article, I'm looking through it, and it looks like I, I see on the front page faces of all these different husbands that seem to come from all these different walks of life, uh, different backgrounds, different parts of the world, different ages. Um, and my first thought is, what do these, how are these men really going to relate to me? 
And I started reading these things, and I was relieved to find that this is actually uh, meant to be a funny article. And upon reading it further, I came to see that this actually speaks directly to my life. So there were a series of different Instagram posts by these different husbands, and the first one went like this. If my wife ever hired a private detective to follow me, it would be to get pictures of me not using the coupons I said I used. Guilty. The next one was a hypothetical conversation a man had with his wife. He said, me, I spent half as much as you usually do on groceries. Wife, congratulations. Two hours later, me, we have nothing to eat in this house. <laughs> I've said that verbatim to my wife before. With parenting, one guy said, if it ain't broke, my children haven't touched it. True. Another guy said, hang on, guys. I think my toddler is getting to the good part of his four-hour-long story, and I don't want to miss it. I've probably heard that exact story. Uh, some of the other things that were said in the article, um, I, pro I, I can relate to some of the lapses in parenting, but because I don't know you all necessarily, I won't uh, share some of those things. But just know that the more that I read, the more that I realized this is speaking directly to my life. Um, and I bring that up just to say that this is, I mentioned while we were praying that this is one of those passages that we're going through today that it seems to be dealing with a very specific itch, issue that's very uh, culturally um, contingent, is, is based on something that was happening only in James's day or in, or in uh, societies that are very similar to James's. And so it's these type of passages that we might come across and, and sort of just check out and dismiss as being irrelevant to our lives. James is addressing an issue where in his time there are these um, wealthy landowners who have workers, poor, perhaps migrant workers that are working on their fields, and these wealthy landowners are neglecting to pay them. They're probably providing harsh work environments, just mistreating these people. And I would imagine that not many of us are uh, wealthy landowners so much to the point where we have people working on our land and we don't live in a time where there uh, aren't labor unions, where there aren't bodies to whom uh, the oppressed can appeal. And so this is a very different time. And yet I think what strikes at the heart of this passage and what we'll see applies to us directly is through this situation, we see God's heart for the poor, number one. We see, number two, God's concern for how we use the resources that he's given us by looking at their misuse of their wealth and power. I think we can see a lot of things, especially in our Western, more affluent culture and society, where we, compared to the rest of the world, are in the position of those who might be considered wealthy and well-off. This text would have something to say to us. So as we get into the passage, I just want to... Uh, review just briefly where we've been last week and sort of show how it transitions into this week. So last week, Travis, when he was preaching, the last section that he covered was chapter 4, verse 13 through 17. And um, in that section, uh, James is dealing with believers who are misguided and even arrogant, James says, and uh, planning so much so that when they're planning their livelihood in the future, how they're going to earn their money in the future, they're not taking really truly taking the reality of God into account. They're planning as if there's no possibility that God might have a, a different path for them, a different plan for them, that he might alter their plans. 
And therefore, James uh, counsels them to say, you ought to be saying instead, if the Lord wills, we will do this and that. Always rightly acknowledging the lordship of God in our lives as we pursue our livelihood or our wealth. Our section uh, in chapter, starting in chapter five, verse one through six, it seems as if James is addressing a similar issue, but it becomes very clear that he's addressing a different audience. It's very similar. We're, we're still dealing with the approach of money and how we use our wealth and our resources, but there's no offer of, uh, of comfort or counsel in this section. This is purely a section of condemnation, and it seems as if James is addressing those who have gone so far off the deep end with their wealth and how they use their money that these, aren't, these are no longer believers that he's addressing in this section. Or at least it seems that he's, dress, he's addressing those who, um, by their actions and how they use their resources, they're acting as unbelievers. And that's where we see in beginning in chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, what I want to do is sort of just walk through the passage. And there's really, uh, as I was preparing the sermon, there's only one. I just want to leave you with sort of one application point, one thing to pray through. And I'll reveal that as we move through uh, the text. But... The way that the text is broken down is you have in verse 1, James declares condemnation on the rich. And starting in verse 2 all the way down through verse 6, he explains why these rich people were destined for condemnation. Uh, that it's not simply the fact that they are rich, as if uh, riches or wealth is evil in and of itself, but it's their misuse of their wealth specifically in four different ways. In verses two through three, he says that they have selfishly hoarded their wealth. Second, in verse four, they have defrauded their workers. Third, in verse five, they follow a self-indulgent lifestyle. And six, fourth, in verse six, they oppress the righteous. So let's start by looking in verse one in James' declaration of condemnation. He says, come now, you rich, Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, any of the unbelieving rich people to whom James is, is, is referring in this section, it's likely if they ever actually heard this word from James, that they would have just brushed it off. The fact that James is calling them to weep and to howl, and the, and the picture there is, you can imagine in, in all the, the tragedies that have happened of late in the news of uh, the, the murders that have happened over in Bangladesh by supporters of ISIS, you can imagine some of the wailing and the howling that took place as people discovered the death of their family members. It's that type of utter despair that James is evoking in our minds in this section, and he's saying to these rich, you ought to be acting this way. And you can just imagine sort of the apathy, the disbelief that these, these rich people who are in a season of life, they're, they're very comfortable in their lives, there doesn't seem to be any threat to their wealth, to their power, to their prestige, to their position in society, in the horizon. And so it seems like James is... Uh, condemnatory note is off the mark. And yet James is very clear, and the rest of the biblical writers are very clear throughout the Bible that it's not so much uh, justice meeting these rich in this life that James is looking towards. 
James and the other biblical writers are not oblivious to the fact that so often in this life, it seems as if those who are getting away with uh, abusing the poor, misusing their resources, or all the, pe- all the times where we may uh, see someone that, and, and grow jealous of them, thinking that, Lord, why didn't you bless me with that same type of resources? I would have stewarded so much better, or put me in that position. I would have acted in accordance with your word. They're not expecting, James isn't expecting justice to be meted out in this life. And yet he knows that it is inevitably going to come. This is the type of language, this weeping and howling language. If you go through out the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, into the small prophets, this language constantly comes up of these prophets looking into the future time and looking at the lot, the plight of all those who have aligned themselves against the Lord of hosts, against the God of heaven. And just the utter despair coming apart at the seams that happens to them when he reappears and finally issues judgment. This is an end times judgment that he has in view now as he wraps up the end of his letter here. He's looking to the end. And one thing to note again, uh, also in, in verse one, just the fact that when he says, for the miseries plural that are coming upon you. He doesn't say the misery. He says the miseries. And the point, the reason why he uses the plural is that it's sort of a, a picture of the incessant crashing of waves on the shore, one misery after the other that will befall those who have finally fallen into God's hands, the great judge, and throughout all of eternity are suffering for their rebellion against him. This is what James is dealing with here this condemnation on the rich, and he begins to spell out exactly what they've done that has so angered the Lord. And I believe it's starting in verse two and and the rest of the passage that we can really uh, see what the Lord might have for us. So first, they have selfishly hoarded their wealth. Starting in verse two, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. This, your riches have rotted, your garments have, are moth-eaten. He's looking, uh, well, first of all, you, you, you see this sort of past tense language. He's speaking as if these things have already happened. Your riches are rotted. He doesn't say they will rot. He says they are rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. And what's happening, what he's doing, and what, all the, what he's doing consistent with what prophets do is they look into this end time, and they see this vision, and they see the utter certainty of the fate that will befall those who are set against God. And he speaks as if it's already happened, that it's already sealed, it's already done. He's already seeing that their riches have rotted, that their garments are moth-eaten, and this is all the things that they have spent on themselves all the clothing that they bought for themselves to adorn themselves with no concern for the poor and the disenfranchised and the least of these that are important to God. He takes it up a step, in fact, in verse 3, when he says, your gold and silver are corroded. What's odd about that is even in the first century, they knew that gold and silver are the type of metals that have a, a great deal of permanence about them. They don't corrode. That's why civilizations use these precious metals as a system of currency, as an abiding system of currency. It's why there are even some movements in America now or some people who would like to see us 
turn away from using uh, paper and printed money that's so uh, sort of fluid and, and often superfluous, Mo moving back to a, a standard of gold, something that's permanent, that's something that's tangible because it does not corrode. And yet James is envisioning a time where the seemingly indestructible meets its match in the presence of God. Even your gold and your silver, what you stored up, what you believed would always be there for you to rely upon has corroded. And he says, their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Here's what he has in mind. Throughout the scriptures, the people of God are exhorted to use what God has given them to meet their needs, yes, but primarily outside of that as a source of blessing towards others. That your riches, your, your wealth, your possessions aren't meant to stay in your possession, but are meant by God to be used as a means of blessing, as a means of loving those who are around you and revealing to all those who are around you that these things are not your treasure. Christ is and that the love of Christ flows through you and you want to lavish that same love upon other people. And so the picture here is if you can imagine these people having their gold and silver stored up in their barns or in their storehouses, these resources that should have been flowing out of their houses and going out into the community and serving those that were around them, but they're just stacked up here in their own, uh, on their own property. And James is saying the fact that they're just sitting here in your possession, that they're not out there flowing from you, is as if all these evidence, all these, pit, all these uh, pieces of evidence are stored up here and they're just sitting behind you and condemning you and, and revealing the fact that you didn't walk in obedience to the Lord. You didn't use the things that you had for the sake of others. It's a storehouse of evidence that will testify against you. The final condemnation is at the end of verse three. You have laid up treasure in the last days. This is the point wherein I was working through uh, the sermon that I feel like the Lord just wanted me personally to just camp out on that very short indictment when he says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. That's meant to be almost an unbelievable thought it's as if he's saying, you chose to use the last days, your last bits of time on this earth, the, the, the brief moment in time in light of eternity when you're waiting upon the Lord to just store up your own treasure. It made me think of uh, a documentary that my wife and I started recently watching, and it was a documentary of people who have been diagnosed with a terminal illness. Um, reaching a point of just acceptance that the doctors have done all that they can, but there's nothing more that they can do, uh, that their time left on earth is very limited. And so in a very practical way, they're in their last days. And across the board, what you see in one form or, of a, or another is these people taking out their bucket list, the things that they have dreamed about doing their whole lives, uh, the things that they never really got around to doing, but the things that they just wanted in their last days to really feel alive before they met 
ultimately their death. They realize that because my time is limited, I want to live during that time. And that impulse is the same thing that Christ appeals to when he says uh, confusing things like, if you really love your life, if you want to live, die so that you might find life. That's not just a, a, a boring religious statement that he's making. He's saying, no, now that I've revealed myself to you, now that my glory is on display, now that I've offered myself to you and I'm offering to live in you, come and actually live. But the process of actually living, of actually becoming alive is through dying, is through dying to selfish desire. That's, all, that's what we ought to be uh, doing in our last days is truly living. The dawn of Christ, of his kingdom has come and he's opened a way for us to taste of it now. And he beckons us as believers to, to heed that call, the same call that these particular rich individuals rejected. Rather than truly living and, and giving of their treasures in this life, they stored them up for themselves. That made me think of uh, Jesus when he talks about selling your possessions. Um, I don't know why specifically this, this verse came up, but when Jesus starts to talk about selling your possessions, one of the things that, that stood out to me was anytime. I think about those sort of hard calls of discipleship. My first reaction, and what I'm guessing is the first reaction of many of you is to, uh, at least the heart's reaction, is to dismiss those type of calls as irrelevant to our lives or as uh, just isolated to particular individuals. Like maybe it was just the rich young ruler that had so many treasures that Jesus was just telling him to sell of his possessions, but that's not really a call to the gospel for all, a call to obedience for all. And yet when you look at places, and I believe it's like Luke 12, Jesus says these things to throngs and crowds of people who are going to follow him. It's not just isolated, really, really wealthy individuals. He calls all who follow him, sell your possessions and find treasure in heaven. And I was thinking about that and just thinking about, okay, so my reaction is either to dismiss uh, the call to, to want to sell the things that I have or the way that I'll respond to this verse is to, say, is to say, well, maybe I'll take some of the extra things that I don't really use or maybe just some of the extra income that hasn't already been accounted for, that I haven't already allocated to a specific task or for a specific purpose. Maybe I'll just give some of that extra stuff. You know, the things that my heart hasn't yet really latched onto as really my possession and I'll just give some of that. But again, that's not what Jesus calls people in his day to do. They were rich in, in, in his time that had extra income, that could have just given some of their extra income. But Jesus specifically tells them to sell some of your possessions, the things that your heart already is attached to, as a way of saying, not only to yourself, but to the world, that these things are no longer my treasure. My life is different 
now. There's a fundamental radical shift that has taken place in my heart, and I have eternal treasure in heaven, and that's how I respond. I don't, I don't need all the things that I needed before. And so I say all that to say this. One of the things that the Lord laid on my heart that I would just ask, uh, this isn't TCC elders telling everyone to do. This is just one of the things as I was praying through this that I want to try to challenge myself with, and if you, would, if you wanted to take this, you can, but just what would it look like for me to lead my family in thinking of what's one thing that we actually enjoy, that we value, that's, that's, that's a possession of ours, that we use? What's one thing that we could remove from our lives, sort of uproot from our lives, and either give away to someone who is in need or actually go through the process of, of selling our possessions and using that money to give to some type of person in need or some type of cause and actually taking something that my hands are attached to, that my heart is attached to, and leading my family in getting rid of that treasure for the sake of treasuring up, uh, saving up treasures in heaven. My one application today would just be this one thing. Would you consider just praying about what might be one thing that you actually care about, that's a possession of yours, that you value, that you could use to bless someone else, that you could use to take just one tangible step of obedience to, to tell yourself, these things are no, are no longer my treasure. I have treasure in heaven. Christ is enough for me as we sung. I would just ask that that be one thing that you pray about. One way, um, one example, there was a, a family that's really close to uh, my family that's mentored, my wife and I, and one of the things that they thought of that I thought was really amazing was uh, there was a time, they, they have a budget, they set their budget, and they have all of their uh, necessary expenses in that budget, and then they have a certain amount that they allocate towards groceries every month. And the mom thought of, what would it look like if for one month we take the set number that uh, we normally spend on groceries every month, and we just spend a month where we eat really simply. They decided to just try to eat all rice and beans um, meals for that month, just a way of sort of self-denial and using the excess that they had in that grocery part of the budget to bless someone else. A way of taking something that they hold on to, their food, their, their bellies. We're, we're warned throughout scriptures that our, our bellies can be our God oftentimes and often in a tangible way. And I just thought, wow, what an amazing way to not only show yourself, but to show your, your children that this is, this is serious. These things that we have are, are not our treasure. This life is fleeting. We have treasure in heaven. Christ satisfies us. And what greater joy is there than to really live in this time by allowing God's love to flow abundantly, lavishly through us onto the life of someone else. And that's just an example. That's just something that I, th I think I'm going to challenge myself to try to lead my family through of just thinking through what might be one thing. And I would pray and ask that you consider if the Lord will lead you in the same direction. Moving on in verse four, he says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you 
And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Notice here that he says it's their wages that were being kept back that are crying out to the Lord. He doesn't say it's the laborers that are crying out to the Lord. He's saying it's their wages that are crying out to the Lord. And this is really interesting. This was sort of eye-opening to me. And I realized that there's a pattern throughout Scripture of not only people crying out to the Lord, but things, inanimate objects, crying out to the Lord for justice. And we see the first example of this, if you remember back in Genesis chapter 4, when Cain kills his brother Abel. He's jealous of his brother Abel, so he lures him out into a secluded field uh, where no one is looking, and there he slaughters his brother, his innocent brother Abel, and presumably just leaves his body there to bleed out into the ground. And the Lord confronts Cain and says, where is your brother? And he says, it's his blood that is crying out to me from the ground. And that's an expression of saying that it's calling out for justice, calling out for vengeance, not just Abel, but his blood itself. In the same way that it's not just these laborers, but their wages that are calling out. And I think the picture here is that apart from any human needing to testify uh, as to as to what happened or even calling out for justice. It's as if, imagine if in every murder case, a jury could go and interview the blood droplets that were spilt themselves and said, who is responsible for you being spilt? Or, or in any robbery case, you could go to the thing that was robbed, the riches themselves, and say, who is responsible for taking you? What this would cause is you would eliminate the need for any type of silver-tongued lawyer who would manipulate justice, who could try to uh, pervert the system or take advantage of some type of uh, flaw in the system to uh, subvert justice and accomplish his own ends. And therefore, justice wouldn't be meted out. All these things are just a way of, of God saying that he is a perfectly just judge, and there is it is impossible to crack his system of justice. When he gives a final rendering of all things, when he renders a verdict on all things, there is no one who will be able to influence his decision. There is no one who will be able to subvert justice. But as Abraham said, the judge of all the earth will in fact do right. And we see here in this verse in particular that one of the things that is nearest to the heart of God that he most wants to do right by are those who are exploited, those who are the poor, the disenfranchised, the abused, the neglected of society. We see throughout scripture him referring to his love for this group of people. Starting in uh, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 14 and 15, we see them say, you shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns, you shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it. He needs it, lest he cry out against you and the Lord, to the Lord, and you be guilty of sin." 
Not only there, but moving on to the prophets, we see in places like Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, verse 5, when uh, Malachi writes of this coming judgment of the Lord, and one of the things that the Lord is most angered about is the mistreatment of oppressed workers. He says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who trust, who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus himself, our Lord, Luke chapter 6, verses 24 and 25, he says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. He says later the the story, the parable of uh, Lazarus, and he says to the rich man who refused to use his resources to um, care for Lazarus, this poor uh, man just laying uh, laying about in the city, He says to that rich man, you had your nice things in this life. In other words, saying you refuse to use your nice things for others, and so you've had your full consolation in this life, and now there's nothing left but condemnation. All the apostles are very aware that this is an issue that's near and dear to the heart of God. Uh, In fact, in, in Paul's letter in Galatians, he talks about the fact that after his conversion moment, when he was knocked from his horse, when he saw a blinding light, uh, and he was converted from being one who uh, worked in opposition to Christians to actually becoming a Christian and a Christian leader himself, he talks about the fact that the first thing he did was for 14 years, he just went about preaching the good news of Christ without ever having met James and Peter and John, those that he said were the pillars of the faith. He didn't even know these guys yet. And in Galatians chapter two, he says, after 14 years of just going about by himself and preaching, he finally makes his journey to Jerusalem and he meets these pillars of the faith. He doesn't know who they are, but he can tell that they're sort of uh, the important ones, the ones that all the other Christians are gathered around. And so he approaches them. And it says, right after it says that they extended the right hand of fellowship to one another, that they uh, came to a point where they realized, okay, we're on the same team. The very next thing that they said in chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says, only, right before he sent them out, he said, only they asked us, me and Barnabas, to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. It's his way of saying, right before I left out the door, the thing that they wanted to stress is they said, do not forget the poor. Do not forget the neglected because they know the heart of God. And Paul does as well because he says before they even charged him with that, he says, this was the very thing I was eager to do. One who knows the heart of God and knows what is precious to him. So we see this throughout scripture, how near and dear this part of our society, of the people that are around us, are to the Lord. And when it says that they're crying out against their oppressors and against those who would not extend their hand to them in fairness, in equity, it says their cry has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. It ought to be a frightening thing. One of the scenes that you often see in my house will be something like, I'll be downstairs, and all my girls will be playing upstairs, uh, playing upstairs in the playroom, 
out of nowhere, you hear one of them, probably my oldest, because she complains anytime the smallest boo-boo happens, just go, ow! And then after that, you'll see, you'll hear footsteps start to march towards the top of the stairs. And very soon after that, you hear my youngest, Simone, screaming and pleading, no, 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 Amaya, don't tell, don't tell, no, Amaya, I promise I won't do it again, I promise, don't tell. And she's like clinging onto Amaya's skirt, keep trying to drag her away from shouting downstairs that Simone just whacked her in the back of the head with her magic wand as she was pretending to be a fairy. Things like that happen all the time. But why is it that she is pleading with Amaya not to uh, call out downstairs and, and reveal her crime? It's because even at two, she knows that once her crime is reported to the Lord of hosts, which in this case is me, <laughs> then the Lord of hosts will come and mete out justice, will discipline her in some way. But in her mind, it's like the most terrifying thing. She doesn't want to be disciplined, doesn't want to get in trouble. Uh, because she knows that one of the things that is so important to me is that they learn how to treat each other with kindness and to be careful with one another and to love one another and to learn how to be good sisters to one another. Similarly, knowing that this portion of our society, the poor, the downcast, are so near and dear to the heart of God, not only should it have caused these rich um, these rich folks who, who misuse their wealth to tremble, but I feel like even with us reading from a distance, there ought to be a bit of a sober trembling. Because verse 5 seems more than any other verse in this passage to hit home as James continues. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You chose to use this brief time that you have on yourself, on comfort, and not really living, and not living for Christ, let alone for others. And this imagery of you fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter, it's meant to be a bit ironic. Um, you all know of like when cows are overfed or when, in, what, what's the word, foie gras? Anyone know what that is, foie gras? Am I saying that right? When birds are some type of, I've never eaten it, don't think I'm like uppity and like talking about dishes. That, but it's some type of uh, bird that, that the way that you prepare it is that you just overstuff it, you stuff it, you stuff it to get it really tender, I guess, and so that its fat portions fill up so that it's even more ripe for the slaughter. That every time you're feeding it, you're setting it up in mind, you're, you, you have in mind this day when it will ultimately be slaughtered. And the Lord is basically saying that all those times, then you realize when you were just indulging on yourself and you were just spending on yourself, that you weren't living in light of the day when the people who do that will be like fattened calves that have just stuffed themselves their whole lives and are ready to be slaughtered in that end time. Luxury and self-indulgence. In this Western society that we live in, I think it's a sobering word for all of us even those of us who are believers, to really just get right with the Lord and, and, and pray that he would reveal where we struggle in these areas, as I'm sure all of us do to some degree. Uh, finally, the last verse, when he says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous, he does not resist you. Um, what's probably in view there is not a direct 
murder, like in actively murdering these individuals, these, uh, these poor um, folks, but just sort of indirectly by the very fact that you've withheld their wages, you have not allowed them the ability to provide for themselves, to actually buy their own food, to live. You've basically condemned them to death. They have no other means to survive. And in that sense, you might as well be labeled a murderer. But, one of the, but just this last little phrase here, he does not resist you. I believe this is a sort of a, a separate um, bit of counsel for believers who may be on the opposite end of the spectrum, who may be, um, you may be the, the people that feel like you are being oppressed or that you're being taken advantage of, or even something as literal, literal as somebody is withholding money from you that they owe you, or somehow you are just being uh, sort of pushed to the fringe. When he says he does not resist you, uh, this is the language that Jesus uses when he says, do not resist those who would strike you in the face, but turn the other cheek. In other words, when he's talking about dealing with your enemies, this is a willful non-resistance that he's talking about. He's not just saying that these are people that because they're so helpless, because they don't have uh, any like labor unions, they don't have any resources to actually fight back, that they're simply powerless to fight back, even though they want to. What's being highlighted here is a choice that these oppressed believers made to suffer with Christ, to willfully choose to obey Christ and to not resist when the outcome is already determined. Now, I just want to be careful here. This isn't, uh, I think, what comes to mind to some people is like, well, what do you do about like civil disobedience and uh, civil rights and all that stuff? I think the, the difference is uh, during civil rights and all those type of movements, this is, those are when people are taking advantage of lawful means to uh, bring about justice, and they're appealing to an existing constitution to bring out justice. Those type of things don't exist in this time. The, the, it, the plight is really hopeless for these um, poor people during this time, and yet even in their supposed hopelessness, they're finding peace and rest in Christ, they're not resisting. They're choosing to suffer and experience the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And so even in that, I think there's a word for all of us in just uh, the injustices that we may be facing. How are you choosing to respond to them? Are you choosing to walk in obedience? Not just if you do have resources, but when you do not. And so in all these things, in this, in this very specific passage, in this very specific um, text, in the, this context, I think the Lord is revealing to us and he's warning us believers, those who um, have already placed our trust in him or perhaps you're here today and, and you don't know Christ. This, he's revealing the, the seriousness with which he places the resources that he has given to all people. They do not belong to you. He has given them to you and he intends for you to find life and learning how to give away so lavishly as he does for you. And so just one point, if there's anything, one point of application uh, that I would just want to challenge you with, just one thing, it would be the same thing I wanted to challenge myself with. Is, is there anything, any way in which you could take one small tangible step to root something out of your life that's important to you, that has value to you, that you use, not just something extra that it's easy for you to just throw away, but something that means something to you, that has previously been a treasure to you in some case. 
and using that to show these things are no longer my treasure, but Christ is, and my treasures are in heaven. I would just ask that you would pray that the Lord would lead you in that, and if he would have you do that to, to walk in obedience, and that you would pray for me that he would do the same. But let's pray. Father, so weighty and powerful is wealth and possessions and prestige that it's the very thing that you put in opposition to the lordship of Christ when you said no one can have two masters. You can't serve God and money. That in one way or another, whether we have it, have a lot of it, or we don't have it and crave after it, money and the things that accompany it, status, power, prestige, these can be such tantalizing things in our life that often entangle us and blind us from seeing your superior glory, your superior worth, that they entangle us and, and tie us down to this world and compel us to lay up treasures in, on this earth when we ought to be laying them up in heaven. Lord, if your gospel is true, then the kingdom that awaits us is not even worth trying to compare even the sufferings, the worst aspects of this life as if they somehow equal out with the glory that will be revealed to us there. Standing in your presence, being perfected in your presence, basking in your beauty and your infinite splendor throughout all of eternity will make everything in this life pale utterly in comparison. And you invite us to taste of it now, not just to wait until this end judgment that James foresees, but, eterni but eternal life is open to us now. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to walk in it. Tear the idols out of our lives. Pluck them from our hands that we might more wholly grasp onto you. Help us just this week to take one step, whatever it is, whether it's what was suggested today or just something where we don't just uh, take a sermon and, and uh, affirm that yes, that's, that's true, but God's word is true, and then walk away unchanged as James warns us against at the beginning of this letter, looking into the perfect mirror of your word, the law of liberty, and turning away and forgetting what we see. Lord, if we see idols that you're exposing in our hearts, I pray that you would help us to fight and war against those from the moment that we step out of this room. And whatever that looks like, empower us to walk in obedience, I pray. In Jesus' holy name, amen.